Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there. Welcome to another episode of Flavors Unknown. Thank you for listening today. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche, and every other week I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discuss their path to success, to understand what compelled them to become a chef or bartender, and to know a little bit more about their creative process and to talk about interesting new ingredients they are experimenting with. You can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com and click on the episode page. I invite you as well to follow the show on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, where I share several times a week dishes, quotes, and pictures from the guests that are coming on the show. My guest today is Chef Brian Ahern from Buff House in Chicago. This is a French-German brasserie, and they receive several awards for their great classic sandwiches that they serve at lunchtime. And this is my favorite place for the most delicious short rib beignet on the planet. Maybe if you are a vegetarian, you skip uh, this episode because the chef is going to talk a lot about meats and bones and pastrami and milk and poultry stock. Stay tuned until the end of this episode where Chef Brian Ahern is going to give you some advice how to elevate your burgers for your summer barbecues. Hi, Chef. I'm really excited to have you on Flavors Unknown. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, excited as well. It's nice to, nice to talk to you again. Your restaurant is called Buff House. And so what is it? And can you give us some example of what kind of food you have on the menu? Buff House is just a, you know, it's a small neighborhood French German brasserie. I like to think of it more. Uh, you know, we have been coined somewhat of a, a steakhouse, maybe somewhat because of the name, but I would like to think of it more a brasserie style. And uh, it's lunch is a little bit more casual with, you know, kind of beef sandwich focused and then and then dinner's a little bit more upscale but approachable with you know different cuts of meat different cuts of pork from whole animals that we whole you know pigs that we butcher and then just whatever you know is seasonal to to round out those you know fish and seafood offerings as well so french german i guess in the name correct buff and yeah. for beef in french and then the house ma- made up word <laughs> okay made a word in german okay cool <laughs> And so on your website, it says that it is the coalescence of the old world culinary techniques and contemporary styles. So what do you mean by this? And do you have concrete examples for us? It was a building that my partner, Jamie Finnegan, and I found on Craigslist and it had been a, a butcher shop for the last hundred years. The place left us, you know, a lot of presents, I guess, to, as far as, you know, old wood, wood walking cooler that was built on site to the tile when you first walk into the into the building. So we wanted to try and keep sort of that old world feel, uh, you know, except sort of, you know, make it contemporary and, you know, in, in our offering and from the music that we play to stylistically with our staff. And but then also old world being, you know, I'm classically French trained and, you know, the place, the place has an old feel to it. It's definitely not you know, dated in its in its offering and, and you know, our approach about how we go about doing that. It's both fun, loud, convival and, and, and you know, it's it's 
So we wanted the place to sort of speak for itself from get, keeping in those old world touches yet, you know, make it contemporary, I guess, on that. Sure. And but you said old world culinary techniques, so French trained. So what kind of technique are you using? You know, classically French trained. We're from our we are we have do some pretty extensive sauce work from making demi glazes to, you know, the, our old world butchery where pâtés, terrines, uh, you know, sausage it, from our vegetable cookery. We don't really, you know, sous vide anything. We, maybe we have a couple pork dishes that we may sous vide just to help us you know, sort of speed up the cooking process. But, you know, we've, we cook, uh, you know, our cooks cook. There is this, and I'm that's sure that's true for a lot of restaurants, but it's, you know, we're, everything is cooked to order, you know, just done classically with, you know, we sort of try and let the ingredients speak for itself. So what kind of pate do you make? We make all sorts of pate. Currently now on the menu, we have a, uh, a country pate, classic with, you know, pork, some bacon, some livers, uh, some onions, you know, whatever else we might want to fill in there. We have a pork liver mousse on as well that is encased in fat. We also have a smoked calf's liver mousse as well, which has been on the menu recently, which is nice. We have a, a butcher who's, he's been wonderful. He's been with us from the beginning and he's sort of taken that program and, and run with it. And we give, you know, we give him a lot of freedom to do it. He, you know, within the realm of what we're trying, trying to do, but we tweak it, try and balance the menu a little bit with, you know, some of that old world, you know, butcher items and then make it a little bit more contemporary with, you know, some of our more composed offerings, but try and not be so fussy. So steakhouse or no steakhouse? I've, I consider it more of a brasserie, but maybe that's... A brasserie, okay. A brasserie, but, uh, you know, I can understand, I guess, where the, you know, the public for sure thinks we're, we're, we're a steakhouse and yeah, we are, you know, meat focused. And I think, you know, our name initially came initially from our, the, our lunch offering the sandwiches, my partner and I just you know, wanted to have a, find a place for to just, you know, some casual, you know, beef sandwiches done right. And then if the place just sort of morphed into, into what it is now, but you know, it's open all day long other than Sunday's dinner only. And then I think it's more of a brasserie, but you know, it's a steakhouse. If, if that's what people want to call it, that's what people want to call it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're talking about the, the lunch menu and that you are focusing on Classic beef sandwiches. Uh, so again, can you give us some some example? I think you know we we like to hear a little bit what kind of sandwiches you do, and if it's they are elevated kind of sandwiches, so if it takes on them, so it will be interesting to to understand what it is. You know, for example, we make our own pastrami. We make we make everything in house, but uh, we make our own pastrami. We make our own corned beef. We have a you know a roast beef sandwich called a beef on whack, which is probably one of our best sellers, and it's from. I'm from upstate New York originally, so it's a kind of a native sandwich to that. Just very, very simple, you know, roast beef with some horseradish, and then the and then the the bun being a camelweck roll with a little bit of sea salt and some caraway on there. We have a Philly cheesesteak that's very classic in its ingredients, but the way we do it, you know, I, I would like to think that we're one of the few places that take whole ribeyes and we slice them. Choice ribeyes that we slice very, very paper thin, as opposed to other places maybe getting some chopped ribeye or something that's been frozen before, whatever the case may be, ours is fresh. We put it in the freezer just for, you know, 20 minutes just to make it hard enough to make it easier to slice paper thin. And then on a beautiful, soft uh, D'Amato's roll, what D'Amato's is a wonderful Italian bakery here in Chicago. And then just some onions and a little bit of salt and some pepper and some American cheese. And it's very, very simple, but our, you know, our approach to it and the, and the quality of, of, of beef that we're buying 
uh, for any of these sandwiches is is second to none. I, I like to think, uh, you know, Bon Appetit had the cheesesteak as one of the best sandwiches in America a few years back, which was a nice honor. But I don't, you know, yeah, great. Um, yeah, you know, but the pastrami takes us almost a month to make. The corned beef takes us some time, and I think that's what you know separates them. And our Reuben was just voted by the Tribune as the best corned beef sandwich in Chicago, which is wonderful. And then we have a porchetta Philly, which is some people say it's the original Philly cheesesteak, which is a, a pork cheesesteak with uh, like garlicky broccoli rub and traditionally made with provolone. We use Gruyere on ours, but our our sandwiches are they're very simple, but they're a, a lot of attention is given to them from the sourcing of the bread to sourcing of the meats to how they are executed, and and it's I think that's what separates them, you know, of, of, as far as it's it's the execution based where ingredient driven, and and I think the, those all five of those are wonderful examples of that because it's just kind of less is more and treat the product properly and and just watch it and let it speak for itself. Yeah, less is more exactly. So, are you always having those five on the menu, or do you have as well that limit time offers or like you know like rotate? Those five have been around for a while, and then we will run specials. Uh, currently, now we have a, a Parisian ham sandwich on with uh, sauce garbiche and then a little petite salad as well. And then we just have a rotating, you know, there's there's always stuff rotating in and out. And then the lunch menu, there's some there's always some light salads, you know, some charcuterie, a tartare, a fish of the day, which changes based upon, you know, availability and the time of year, you know, a sausage of the day. So it's a it's a pretty balanced. It's a wonderful little place to go for lunch. You know, and our we have our full line list, full bar. So if you know if you want to come in and spend fifteen dollars for a sandwich and a beer and get out of there in twenty five minutes, you can do that. If you want to sit down and go and go crazy, you can sit down and go crazy. You know, you can always get the ribeye at lunch too. There's a steak frites at lunch. So it's it's a fun little place to go for lunch. So let's go back in time a little bit. I'm curious of um, what uh, compelled you to uh, become, become a chef. I was a fine arts major at the College of Charleston. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And I was, uh, you know, working my way through school and I was just working in a, a kitchen at like a kind of rowdy fried chicken restaurant during the day. And then at nighttime, I would bounce or bartend. And it's where I sort of really started getting a, a taste of the restaurant business. And I knew that I sort of liked it. And I, I, I've always worked my entire life. And it you know, was ingrained for me from my father had his own business. And then I was always working from when I was from when I was young. And so I had, I think I initially had that, that work ethic just instilled for, you know, what it took to, to really succeed in restaurant businesses. You have to be able to put your head, it's long hours and, you know, you have to accept that and, and just be willing to put your head down and, and go and work. And, and when I really started getting a taste for the business, I just decided to go for it. And I moved to New York city and, and just started working, but I can remember, but now, you know, thinking back, people always ask that question or what, made that you know where do you think it came from and my father had a big influence on me as far as well, he wasn't a big food person but it's sort of ironic that he was always taking us to you know the off the beaten path place to go to go eat or we'd be go visiting my grandmother and we'd be taking the back road you stay at a small bed and breakfast or you know you go to this little pizza restaurant that we used to go to in my town or i remember him taking taking me for ice cream after soccer games being when I was, I don't know, I had been 10 or 12 years old in this little place in, in Rochester, they were, you know, mixing. Now it's a big thing with, you know, 
cookie dough ice cream or everything in the ice cream or, you know, this is, I want to say 1990, 91, there was a small place in Rochester that was mixing it to order with, you know, the paddles on the cold marble, this old little Italian place. And that always sort of stuck with me or he was, he was always just sort of taking us to the, to the off the beaten path places. And I think that, that, that really had an effect on me. And then growing up, I remember, you know, watching Julia Child on television and, you know, Emerald watching that and you know Roy can cook on PBS and I you know so I always sort of had a a taste for it and then and then I wasn't really sure what I was going to do and I just sort of jumped in and my my father you know said if you're going to do it you need to need to go to New York and you start working for you know quality people and work in the and so no kidding that's what I did correct no 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 culinary school he probably advised you not Take some uh, loans, correct? <laughs> well, that's exactly what he—that's exactly what I did. I had already had student loans from undergrad, and my mother, you know, she was leaning more towards the culinary school side. And you know, the best advice my father gave me was just no, just just go, just go work, and that's what I did. And you ended up at uh, one moment with uh, one time with uh, the group of David Burke, correct? Yeah, I worked for him for many. I worked for him for about five years, six years. So I'm just curious. I just had him like re- very recently as a guest on on the show, <laughs> and it's a. I mean, he, he he's was a, a great guest. He's a character, but he was a great uh, guest. So how was it to uh, to work with him? I'm, I'm curious. And you have any memorable moments, you know, with him that you can share? He was wonderful to work for. He was he was incredibly demanding though too. He was always working, and he he expected that from from everybody else, you know. And he he was demanding, and but you know, with that, he was. He was an incredibly loyal person to work for too. And I, it took me, I didn't notice. I mean, that's something that when you first start working for someone, especially as a young cook, you're not really, that's something that's not really present in your mind. But the, you know, the longer I work for him and the, the more I work my way up in his company, I would see people come and go for good or bad reasons. And, you know, that nine out of 10 times he was always willing to, you know, to take them back. You know, I'm sure there was a caveat to that, but that's between those two, or, you know, the, those two people. But he was, he was very demanding to work for it. He just wanted you to work and, you know, he's a worker and he wanted you to educate yourself. You know, uh, he's very well rounded as a chef. And a lot of people don't know that as for, you know, his pastry skills are, are up there, you know, they're, and so he's just, he's very well rounded. So what did you learn from him? I learned how to work and I learned, uh, I had a good basic skill set when I went in there and, you know, he and his chefs, you know, they just taught me really how to organize and said, okay, you have, you have the basics. Now this is, this is how you become a professional and showing up early to staying late to just what it takes really to, to be in this business is it's, it's, you know, and his, his kitchens are hard to work in. They were hot and loud and, you know, a kid from upstate New York going into one of these things was, you know, a little bit eye opening, And then, once you get used to it, you know, they really taught me that all that matters is that, you know, you show up, to, it doesn't matter if you're male, female, whatever it is, just you show up to work, you put your head down, you have some integrity while you're at your job and, and nobody cares what you do. Who uh, else were your mentors? You know, David, obviously, for sure. And then for David's right hand, who was my, you know, immediate boss, this guy by the name of Chris Shea, he was been with David for for a long time, he sort of took me under his wing when I first started and, you know, he beat me up a, a little bit, but he, <laughs> you know, but he, he knew that he could trust me and he knew that I wasn't going to lie to him. And he knew that I, I was going to put my best foot forward and he took me under his wing. I was along the ride with him. You know, he, he was doing all David's TV 
shoots, photo shoots, et cetera. And, you know, he, he allowed me to see that sort of, he trusted me enough to, you know, to see that side of the world too, which was wonderful. You know, it, it allowed me to grow a little bit, but, uh, you know, Michael Parolo, who was my chef at Scarpetta, I was in Scarpetta, New York for a minute and then got moved to Miami. Michael Parolo, he is Machialina now in Miami. He was a mentor for me, but he's the nicest guy ever, but you know, difficult to, difficult to work for in the sense that he was, he was, he was uncompromising in it, which is what you have to be. You have to be consistent. And that, that restaurant was huge in the amount of volume that we did comparatively to, to the quality of food that we were putting out was, was unprecedented for that I'd seen at that point, you know, and I, it was because of him and the other Sue, Nina Compton as well. She was the Sue there uh, when I was the other Sue. And those two, they were just uncompromising. You see this idea of like uh, being reliable and um, having reliable people uh, that can work with you change with the time. Because I I read on your Facebook page, you were mentioning how challenging it was uh, sometimes to have reliable, you know, cooks. And it seems that this opinion was shared with a lot of other people because a lot of other chefs commented. And you know, on on your post. So, <laughs> what makes it so difficult to find today's skills or passionate employees? I'm not sure. You know, the the struggle is real. We uh, Epifas, we we've been lucky up until you know we're four years in, and we've been we've been lucky to rest, retain a lot of our staff, both front and back of the house. But now, you know, for whatever reason is right now in the back, we're sort of getting bit by the bug you know some people are moving on i have a couple people have been there three four years and i understand you want to move on but it's overall in the business i I don't know what it is i feel to be honest with you i think it's the the inequities between the pay between the front and the back it's just it's outrageous to be quite honest you know you have you know and obviously people make their choice whether you want to be in the front or you want to be in the back you know and some of that has to do with you know people not wanting to be in front of people or so that's maybe why they choose the back, but just the inequities in pay is, is outrageous. You know, you have some young cook who's, you know, working 10, 12, 14 hours a day for, you know, 14, $15 an hour, 16, whatever it is. And then you have a bartender or server come in for three, four hours. And if you're at a busy restaurant, they're walking out with, you know, anywhere from three to $500 while the cook is, while the cook is, you know, after taxes, you know, we're looking at a hundred bucks or something. It's, it's, it's outrageous, you know? And it's everybody works hard. Everybody works hard in the business and there's everybody plays their role. But I think the, some of the inequities in the pay scale have a lot to do with it. And then I just think that maybe some young cooks don't really know what it takes. Maybe they, I don't know if they've, you know, they, they only see the good side of it. They see the stuff on TV or they see the awards or whatever it is. They don't see the day-to-day nitty gritty. It's a grind. It's a grind. You know, your, your feet hurt, your legs hurt, your you know, you're, it's a grind and it's, it's a commitment and it's, 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 if you're not willing to commit to it, then don't kid yourself into thinking, you know, that, that you can handle it because you can't, because it's going to eat you up and spit you out. And this inequality uh, between the pay, between the front of the house and the back of the house, do you think this is uh, sustainable? Do you think that uh, something has to change? I mean, it's, it's starting to change with, you know, some of the, you know, a lot of the, the majority of them are the, you know, higher end restaurants going to no tipping service included. And I think it's, that's, a, for, that's the way it's going to have to go, but it's, you know, the, the inequities are, it's just, no, I don't think it's sustainable. 
So I'm interested to see where that goes. I'm interested to see where this country goes as far as uh, what's going to happen with healthcare and, and whatnot. And without getting into politics or anything, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, we're, we're small business owners and, you know, it's tough to be even be able to offer, you know, insurance or if what you are offering most, most, you know, it's sometimes it's not the best. So that's, I think with, with low pay or unless you're working for a huge restaurant group or you're working in a hotel, you know, your small mom and pop restaurants, it's, it, the business is hard enough. And then if you're a young cook going to work in one of these environments, you know, you may or may not be getting offered insurance. The pay might be a little bit lower. The hours might be a little bit longer because of size of crew might be smaller. And it's just, you know, it can be a lot for someone, which I understand. So what would be your advice for young students at culinary school or young people that are interested in, in this job? I would tell them if, you know, they're a culinary student or if you're a culinary student and, and you're going to, you know, you're going on your internship or externship, you know, I would find them, you know, the highest quality, most difficult kitchen you could find and go and see if, if, if you can really, if you think you can really do it and, you know, day in and day out and day in and day out and day in and day out. And you'll be fine. You know, you just put your head down and you work and you have to, you don't know anything when you go into a kitchen. I mean, you I could go into a new kitchen tomorrow and I still know how to cook, but every, you still get that feeling. You go into a new kitchen or you go to an event, new kitchen. It's like, you're lost for a second. You know, you don't know anything. You don't know how, I don't know how Joey's runs their restaurant, you know? So you, you need to take as much as, as knowledgeable as you may be. You need to take a step back. And you need to, you know, lose the ego and listen and just put your head down and work. And, you know, the, the cream will rise to the top. And do you think it would be in, important for them as well to have experiences as other places, like big groups that you were talking about, or maybe sure. hotels that, sure. that they have as well, that the tastes of this? And because, you know, obviously, as you say, different advantages and health coverage and, you know, there's a lot of pluses, you know. For, for sure. For but, you know, I think I think one thing that, people need to understand. And, you know, I tell my staff all the time is you might be learning some things that you don't like just as much as you do like. And, and, you know, to be conscious of that. And I think to just, you know, to keep your eyes open and your ears open. And, you know, we talk at the restaurant a lot about with cooking with your ears. And what I mean by that is anything from physically, you're, you're listening to what's going on to you're listening to, you know, that piece of fish that you put in a pan. Is it, is it too hot? You know, the, the fish will tell you if the pan is too hot as, or too, If you're a young cook and you happen to be privy of a conversation between the GM and the big time chef that you're working for, you know, I'm not saying eavesdrop on them, but, you know, maybe eavesdrop on them a little bit and saying, you know, maybe they're talking about how to mark a table properly or this or that. It's something that you don't know. But if you weren't cooking with your ears and paying attention to what's going on around you, you would miss it, you know, and you're, you, you know, you, there's, there's opportunities to learn at every corner in a restaurant and it, you know, something that I think is wonderful about the business. Okay. So let's come back to the buff house. And I'm curious about if you can talk a little bit about your creative process and you know, where does your inspiration comes from? Inspiration comes from everything. It comes from staff. It comes from reading. It comes from eating out at other restaurants, just constantly, you know, trying to immerse yourself in, in what is, going on around you are, you know, I've, I'm not the biggest social media guy in the world, but, you know, I'm still perusing, you know, the Instagrams of restaurants that you like or love or places that you used to work or chefs that you used to work with or 
bartenders or managers that you used to work with? What are they doing? Where are they doing it? How are they doing it? You know, and making sure that, you know, whenever you can get, you know, time off that, you know, if you're traveling that, that, that you are going into, that you're going to eat at that little, you know, where the locals sort of eat type place or the off the beaten path type place. And, you know, just keeping your eyes open. Like your dad took you when you were younger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Any uh, recent inspiration that you got that you can share with us? Actually, the other night I went to Lilia in Brooklyn for dinner with my cousins. I was just out in New York for a family member's birthday party and had a night free. I went to Lilia in New York and it was just, it was beautiful from the space to, to how bright the space was to, you know, it'd been, a, it'd been a while since I sat down and had a, you know, a proper Italian meal and it was just, it was delicious. Just the whole experience was great. And, you know, Americans, I think have a, a clouded view of, you know, what, what Italian food really is for the most part. And, you know, this huge plates of pasta and red sauce and you know they people have Amer- americans have no idea what italian food is so it's it's wonderful to you know have the opportunity to to sit sit down and eat any specific dish that inspired you they have a, a bagna cotta we serve crudite at, at both house it's been on the menu forever and then they had a you know a vegetable offering with you know that that is as the dip and it was cool to sort of see if you know a similar dish but totally different you know different vegetables and it was delicious. They had a, you know, their soft serve. We were, com- we were really, really full at the end, but they had a soft serve with honey. And I can't remember if the last item that was on there that was really, really delicious. New York City in general is inspiring to me, especially this time of year as, you know, it, it's like the city comes alive again and happened to be there. You know, you had three, four beautiful days of just, you know, walking around and, you know, going to the market or, you know, eating pizza or whatever it is. Just, it, it was New York is inspiring to me, to to the colors, to the sounds, to, I miss it. I mean, I love, love Chicago, but it's, it's always good to get back to New York. So let's take one of your dish that I, I really love, and I'm, I know I'm not the only one. It's uh, outstanding. <laughs> it's your short rib beignet. Can you please describe it to us? And then uh, what was the creative process behind it? Braise chuck flaps. Further up on, on the rib of the animal, we buy them. They, they come in, they get seasoned simply with salt and pepper, and we dry them for a day or two. We put a, a hard, hard sear on all sides of them, and then we braise them with a little bit of tomato and mirepoix and then some dark chicken stock and some demi-glace. And we slowly braise them for you know, about three to four hours, let them cool in their own liquid for a little while, and then we remove them and, and pick them and let that cool overnight. And then uh, we come in the next day and reconstitute all that pick short rib with the, the sauce that had been reduced. We add a little diced mirepoix and some herbs. We make a traditional uh, beignet dough, a yeasted uh, beignet dough, still with a little bit of sugar in there, but not nearly nearly as much. And we, we also add a little bit of beef fat to it. And we let that dough proof two or three times. It's very important for us. So we found that as the dough rises, if we punch the dough down and let it re-rise, you know, Two or sometimes three times, depending upon each each dough, is a little bit different. And we've noticed that the the yield is far superior, and for the amount of time that it takes us to make them, that's you know paramount for us. We roll the dough out on onto the table, and we cut we cut the dough into little strips and place the portion of short rib along you know in a line, essentially like you would be making uh, sort of like a ravioli or a pasta. And we fold the dough over itself, and then using a ring mold, we've we sort of pinch them off. Still, they stay shut. We freeze them 
instantly after they've t- been tossed in a little bit of flour. And then we pull them out, pull them out as needed. We fry them in beef fat and serve them with a reduction of the, the cooking liquid, the braising liquid that's been skimmed, you know, multiple times. Oh my God. And I, I have tasted them. I'm drooling here. <laughs> so, we found out, uh, I found out early on. I, I've, I remember early on in the beginning, you know, I guess if you see it on a menu, if, you know, I would order them too. And, you know, I remember in the beginning thinking, oh man, what have we done? We're going to, we got to, we got to figure this out, you know, cause like people love them and, uh, and it's you know, a lot of work. I, I guess, yeah. it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And so I, I guess we hit a home run. I guess we hit a home run. I don't know. You might have another business here. That's uh, maybe <laughs> when are you going to um, offer them on takeouts and, uh, you know, order online? A lot of people will love it. Uh, yeah, if you that's can a ship good it, question. you know, deliver them to New Jersey, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You'll be, the, you'll be the first on the list. Oh, oh man. Uh, so, and, and uh, what is the sauce that you're um, serving it? With? Uh, it's a reduction of the cooking liquid. So there, it is a, a mixture of some dark chicken stock and some field demi-glaze. And then obviously the natural juice that has come out of the braised beef. And then the addition of a little bit of mirepoix and uh, some tomato that, that just sort of adds the right amount of acidity to it. And just reduced all the way down. So we're talking about the sauces before at the beginning of the interview. And you know, you were talking that it is kind of this old tradition, the old techniques and so on. And you have a lot of different sauces with the different dishes and meats and so on. Can can you talk about them a little bit? Pretty much 24-7, 365 at Buff House, there is a, there's a, a dark chicken stock that we have going on, which is our base sauce for, or it's our basis for any other sauce. And, you know, we use chicken for a number of reasons. For one, for economic reasons, it's much more affordable and to it the sort of a neutrality that it has in flavor you know it has a it has a mildness to it i mean you can surely taste that something is chicken but it's not as, as strong as let's say if you're going to use beef or veal or or duck or whatever it is so we make a we make a dark chicken stock every every day by roasting bones really hard we fortify those bones with uh some mirepoix and some tomato a little bit of vinegar some herbs some garlic and we've we make a stock out of those, and then we reserve some of the stock for for stock purposes, and then we further reduce that stock every day. We strain it every night, and then the next morning, the new stock that is made with with the old bones starts the next day, and they'll so on and so forth. So it's constantly reducing. And then if we were to make a duck dish, we take duck bones and fortify that that chicken reduction with duck or with duck stock and duck reduction and that or pork and pork or fish and fish bones or beef and beef bones and then within once the chicken stock is uh, reduced to a place that we like about once a month or as needed but i would say it's about once a month we buy 200 pounds of veal bones and we make a proper demi-glaze that takes us about three days to make and then we portion we portion that demi-glaze into into essentially bricks and then every day, one of those bricks goes into into the into the chicken stock that is on its second day of reducing. So it's chicken, chicken and veal, and then we and then we branch off from there, whether it be duck bones or pork bones or whatever. You have a whole schedule for this, I guess. Yeah, it's a process for sure, but it's I think it's one of the difference makers uh, for the restaurant, and that we're not we're not cutting corners. It's a wonderful tool for young cooks that working there that maybe they have not worked somewhere that that is going through the whole process or, you know, 
they've maybe they've never made a proper deming place. Maybe they've, you know, or it's for them to learn the schedule to how to do it. And it needs to be organized. That needs to be, we have a wonderful prep guy in the morning who that's one of his big jobs. And, you know, we purchase bones according to when he's going to be in the building, you know, trying to, to not over order. And so we've sort of gotten down to a science as far as how many bones, you know, the ovens can handle every day and it X, Y, Z. So, so can you explain a little bit for the people that listening and don't maybe know what it is and a really top line, uh, demi glaze. We buy veal bones and we make a proper uh, veal stock first, or sometimes we fortify it with, with some of the chicken stock if we have it left over. And then it's a, just a slow, 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 slow reduction of the bones are roasted for, uh, we cover them in some tomato and they are roasted until, you know, until they're ready, until the tomato and the bones are caramelized. And then we've, we put them in a pot, you know, fill that with, with liquid and a little bit of, you know, again, that same tomato mirepoix mixture, and then slowly, slowly reduce it. And, and, you know, we've, there's a couple schools of thought too. We've, we continue. So as it reduces, we'll fill, I'll fill it, we'll fill it back up with a little bit more liquid. And sometimes cooks ask us, you know, why are you doing that? And I, I've just found over the years and years of making it that, you know, the yield can be a little bit stronger. If, if you're letting it reduce, then you can fill it back up, let it reduce, fill it back up because there's so much, you know, natural gelatin and, and whatnot in those, in those veal bones and they're expensive. So just trying to, it might even be in my head that, that, that I'm getting a better yield, but, but that's all right. You know, and, and when we just slowly, slowly reduce it and it takes about a day and a half, a bit, day and a half to two days, we let that cool, we skim the fat off the top and then, and then we reduce it down one more time. So it will become, you know, so let's say we, we start with 160 gallons of liquid, we'll get to about eight quarts in a good yield, maybe, now nah, maybe a little bit more than that, probably 12 quarts of liquid, 12 quarts of reduction, 12, 14. And, you know, so we're, it's just a long, slow, arduous process of constant straining and constant skimming of fat and, you know, keeping your eyes on it. And then at the end, it spits out a beautiful, thick, gelatinous veal almost uh so i'm guessing you have like one person focusing on you know on this and as well on you know on the chicken stock and so on yeah yeah so it's it's the guy in the morning who starts it and then it's all of us at night collectively who are going to finish it off to where it needs to go whether it needs to be strained the bones that are left over from making whatever stock we fill that pot we combine both pots into one pot and then that starts the sauce with that little stock for for the next morning so it's 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 a full team effort So you're, you're working with a lot of, I'm guessing, a lot of ingredients, but what are the main ones that are irre- irreplaceable to you? That's a tough question as far as, you know, for, for me, some of the baseline ingredients m- myself would be, you know, obviously chicken bones. Chicken, and if there was maybe, if there was one, one thing left on the planet, it would probably be chicken for me to eat. So uh, <laughs> How will you do your way- beignet? Then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no shot beignet. Come on, <laughs> well, you know, chicken beignet, chicken beignet. But it's, you know, just the versatility of chicken is why I would go that route. But you know, we chicken bones. I use a lot of thyme. We use a lot of garlic. High, high quality olive oil. I couldn't live without high quality vinegars. I couldn't live without you know, just if you don't need a lot, but if you have you know a, a beautiful red wine, a beautiful champagne, a beautiful white, you know, verjou, whatever, whatever it is, you know, or even if you start, we make some of our own vinegars as well. And it's just acid is, acid is important, you know, and it, it can be overbearing, but if it's used subtly, it's, it's, 
you don't necessarily know that it's there unless it's not there. And then you, you know that something's missing. And what are the unique and maybe new ingredients, unfamiliar ingredients, maybe for the listener that you're that really finding their way now to um, your cooking? That's a good question, too. We have, you know, we've been playing around or, you know, I was saying earlier with some, with, you know, some calves livers, you know, being springtime now, too. We've trying to use, you know, everything that, that comes, whether it's a vegetable, whether it's using the greens or whatnot, you know, whether it be, you know, ramp tops and f- taking the ramp greens and pureeing them and then folding them into a pasta dough or folding them into a sausage or making a sauce out of them. Or there's nothing crazy and necessarily wild that's in there. We're just trying to treat what we have, you know, with respect and see how many ways that we can see how many ways that we can use that certain ingredient, you know, whether it be ramp top or something is pickled or something is, you know, made a conserve out of it or it's roasted or it's pureed. We make a powder out of it. Whatever the case may be, how many how many different ways can we use that ingredient? So I would like to pick up your brain. We have been talking a lot about, you know, sandwiches, and so I'm thinking this is the springtime, you know, summertime. So let's talk about big, about burgers and how would you suggest home cook to prepare a burger at home that I will have a little bit the buffalo's style or influence. I would say let the, you know, I mean, it sounds cliche, but, uh, you know, let the ingredients, you know, speak for themselves. And if, you know, maybe a a nice way, if you were, you know, if you had a good relationship with your local butcher and they, and they served, you know, some aged meat, maybe you could ask that him or her to, to save you some of the the ground fat from their butchering and, and, you know, fold that into have that be some of the fat with, you know, get a leaner meat and then fold that into you know, so have that have some aged fat be the you know the fat inside your burger, or if they weren't willing to give you some ground aged fat, you could you know you could render that. Uh, just ask them to save the scraps for you, and you could render that, and then season season that with whatever you wanted. You know, so like at Buff House, we we when our steaks or or burgers or whatever it is come out of our cast iron pans and they're resting, we we season rendered beef fat with uh, f- some garlic and paprika, a little bit of mustard mustard powder herbs and whatnot and, good. and we and we sort of paint that on onto onto the meat as it's resting you know so you could you know you could render that that fat and you know you could cook your burger in fat if you wanted to use a cast iron pan or as it's you know sort of lathered on there if, if you know but i would m- mix the burger yourself as opposed to buying a preformed patty you know and, and just just enough to to sort of let it keep its form after you mix them you've shaped them into whatever size you want you know and then just put them you know in the fridge just for a touch to sort of set up and then it seems counterintuitive, you know, and then you're letting them sit out to get to a little bit more room temperature right before you grill them. But just, you know, just sort of let the, the product speak for itself. Just a loosely packed burger, really high heat and not much more, not much more over medium, you know, uh, for sure, not over medium, but it's, you know, just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but and and any excited sauce that you can put, you know, between the burger and the bun? Sure. You could use, you know, you could take some of that beef fat and make an aioli out of it. You could you could caramelize some onions and, and you know, puree them and then fold that into, you know, some your aioli. You could make your own steak sauce. I mean, there's there's all sorts of I I like a little bit of you know, I like to bite into a cheeseburger and have a little bit of uh, mayonnaise or aioli on the you know the sides of my mouth and and uh you know you could make a uh you know an herb butter or something that 
like a intensely herby butter that you use to you know to paint on on the roll as you toast it because i don't i don't know if i consider a, a burger a burger unless the the bun is toasted and do you what kind of cheese do you use in a buff house in your burger sometimes people you know give us help for it but we use a white american cheese the same cheese that we use i just i like the way that it melts it's like a it's like a, a white american swiss mix it's just important to use a cheese that melts very well on a cheeseburger whether you know a havarti would be nice and mild you could use a gruyere i think is delicious as well exactly i was thinking about french german so i'm thinking oh maybe there's a gruyere somewhere or maybe there's there's a comte or you know something like this comte would be great if you were getting real adventurous and maybe you had some of the you know you were able to get your hands on some ground age beef or ground age yeah beef fat putting like a schmear of some telegio on there would be, you know, it'd start getting real funky or something. And, you know, with, a, obviously with, a, you know, the, the funk of the age. And then if uh, you had some telegio on there, I would probably want some, you know, some sort of like acidic onion or something on there, you know, just took up uh, uh, some pickled onion or a, a grilled pickle, a grilled pickled onion or something like that on there to sort of cut the, the richness of it. But uh, something like that. So are you ready for the rapid fire questions? That's the sure. time. Okay, sure. cool. <laughs> so where do you eat and have a drink in Chicago when you are not at uh, Buff House? I like Elska. I like Elska a lot. Uh, David and Anna Posey's restaurant. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. I go to Rootstock a lot right around the corner from us. Very casual wine bar. As far as drinks go, I've the Sportsman's Club. I get, I'm very lucky to or the Buff House is very lucky. One of the best bars in Chicago is about nine feet from us. I tend to go there. And then I, uh, I actually go to uh, this place called Toons all the time for some chicken wings, which uh, I've become really good friends with the guy there. It was right around the corner from my wife and I's first apartment. And the day we moved in, it was a 165,000 degrees outside. And <laughs> when we were done, when we were done moving, I, she asked me where I was going. I said, I'm going to find a beer. And it was right around the corner. And I just so happened, you know, being a guy from Western New York, I, I couldn't resist the. I had to try the chicken wings, and they're Absolutely. they're excellent. I think they're the best in Chicago. So I I, uh, I I go there all I go there all the time. What is your dirty little food secret, or something other might be surprised that you eat? This is pretty embarrassing, but I have a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't use a microwave for anything ever, but I sometimes if if I'm in a pinch, I will. Uh, like a cold cut sandwich I, with uh with some like a with like a Hawaiian roll or whatever I will I will I will microwave a cold cut sandwich with some cheese on some bread for wow. about twenty sec for about twenty seconds and it, I think it just goes back to getting home from school alone or whatever or, you know high school or it's it I know it's it it's <laughs> just enough to melt the cheese just enough to to warm the meat through and then it makes the bread nice and soft and that thing like they're delicious and. You can't you can't tell anyone that though. That's that's not too bad. That's not too bad though. <laughs> Give me three dishes that you cannot live uh, without cooking or eating. Roast chicken. A roast chicken. Jeez, let me think. What a roast chicken? Uh, yeah, <laughs> after, <laughs> you said it three uh, times, but no, it doesn't count. <laughs> uh, after Thanksgiving, like a, a turkey barley soup with. Uh, taking the taking the carcass some vegetables and then add a little bit of barley it's a family recipe my mother used to make it it's wonderful and then 
just some grilled, I would say grilled vegetables in the summertime, you know, just nice and light. And I, over the summer, if, if I'm, if I'm at home or at a my family's cottage or whatever, there, are, I, I would say there's a hundred percent chance there's a, some sort of grilled vegetable in there. What are your top three favorite cookbooks? I would say James Peterson sauces is, should be in every young cooks. They won the James Beard award for it. Uh, I don't know. Early '90s, uh, the French Laundry Cookbook, and, and I've been getting into it's pretty new. But uh, uh, Jeremy Fox's on on vegetables is wonderful. The Julia Child Art of French Cooking as well. I would say. What do you like the most in being a chef? I like to serve. It took me a long time to figure it out, but it, it you know the, we're providing a, a gift. We're giving a gift to people. You know, we're, we're a lot of people are wonderful home cooks or whatever the case may be, but we're, we're giving a gift to people to, we're giving them something that they can't do for themselves. And whether that would be, you know, a gift of, of giving of a, a, a couple, a young couple, a night out that they save a year to go eat somewhere, or they were giving a, a couple an anniversary or we're giving a family celebration, or we're just, I like to serve and I like to see it. I like to see it all come together, you know, and I like, I enjoy you know, building a strong team and camaraderie and that can be very difficult. You know, we're, you know, the ebbs and the flows of that are, are, are difficult to manage, but if you can, you know, just try and never be too high and never too low. And just, it's a wonderful feeling when you can actually some sort of see your, your vision come to reality and it's the ebbs and the flows of the business. So are, they can wear on you. (laughs) So, yeah. So what about that? So what do you like the least in being a chef? I dislike that. After working ten or twelve days in a row, my I, I have my feet killing me. But that's sort of a cop out answer too. I, I the what I like the least I would say is that uh, sometimes I don't understand. I think that I don't understand. I don't like how the public maybe thinks that you can achieve the impossible for them or that you owe them something because of because we run a successful restaurant that you know we owe you something as far as and everyone is a food critic now. I, yeah, I guess that too, you know, or I, I don't like that people aren't, people don't have the, like enough gumption to, if there's a problem, just, just address it immediately. And if they give one piece of advice to the, to the common man out there or that, you know, if you're, if they're, restaurants want to know if there's an issue with whatever is happening, whether your table's wobbly or your food is salty or it's overcooked or you don't like it, just tell them and they will fix it, you know, or any restaurant that's worth the salt will fix it, uh, you know, immediately and we'll, they want, we want your experience to be great. And, but instead you choose to either not come back or bad mouth it or, you know, review or who knows, you know, I don't even, I, I don't even read them anymore. So it's. <laughs> they, that, that was like an interesting answer and it deserves almost like another, uh, let's say hour <laughs> of discussion. I have a lot of questions about that, but unfortunately I have taken a lot of your time already. So. I just wanted to thank you uh, so much for being available and giving your time uh, to be on the show. And please never, never take those beignets out of your menu. <laughs> I won't. I won't. They won't be going anywhere. Thank you so much for, uh, for thinking of me. And uh, you know, hopefully we can do this again. I hope you like this episode with Chef Brian Ahern from Buff House in Chicago. And make sure to stop there next time you are in town or if you live there and have a taste of those outstanding and delicious short rib beignets. I know I said it, I don't know how many times during this episode, but I really love them. 
go to flavorsunknown.com. Make sure to check on my show notes from this episode to access all the information that were mentioned by the guest today. And one more reminder before I close the show, please, please spend a few seconds to subscribe to the show and leave a review. Uh, this will help you know, others to find the podcast. Coming up in two weeks, I will have celebrity chef Jose Garces on the show. Uh, so I am sure that you are going to love this episode. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.